0: This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the text! This episode is brought to you by the Felder Report. Each week I go through a ton of reading and research. In fact, that's pretty much what I do for a living. Uh, every week I cultivate or curate is probably a better word, uh, a couple of things, five things to be precise, uh, that I found during the week, whether those be charts or links, that I found most valuable. So I put those together into a free weekend email if you're interested in reading something like that. Just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the homepage. You can sign up and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Keith McCullough. Uh, At first blush, Keith might come off as just another brash and cocksure trader, Dig a bit deeper, though, and you'll find a calculating iconoclast driven by a deep desire to both continually improve as an investor and ultimately change Wall Street for the better. After starting in a job running buy and sell tickets, Keith worked his way up to running a portfolio and eventually to founding his own hedge fund. Today, he runs Hedgeye, a research service established with the goal of giving individual investors a look behind the curtain of a major macro hedge fund environment. In this conversation, Keith discusses how he developed his four-quadrant macro framework that informs all of his investing decisions and how he uses it today. He also reveals how volatility can be used as a buyer-sell signal and how getting fired taught him the greatest life lesson of all, to bet on himself. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Keith McCullough. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep.
1: And sheep get slaughtered. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I was looking forward to this, Jesse. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm really glad to have the opportunity to chat with you. I, I have to, you know, I've been thinking about putting together questions and stuff to ask you. And the first thing that I have to ask you about is uh, it seems like you have a, uh, you know, probably to a lot of people, you have kind of a penchant for conflict. And two of my closest friends are Canadians. They seem to prove the cliche that Canadians are overly friendly, almost too nice. You, on the other hand, would appear to, to many to probably be the exception to that rule, at least on Twitter. What is it that draws you to, to conflict or at least compels you to confrontation?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I think your Canadian friends. Are, I'm assuming that they weren't um, weren't the, they weren't Canadian hockey players because they definitely have some kind of a, an agitating component to their game, or they'd, they'd seek conflict to some degree. But I mean, really, I mean, I I'm I no words on this. I mean, I I think when you're disrupting what I affectionately call the old wall, um, or old Wall Street, and, and and a lot of the different things that people have as other – received wisdoms or you know part of of of, of, a, of a process that they think is a a process i i i have a lot to say on that and i think that the only way you can really really get to the heart of the matter is to speak bluntly or factually and especially when it's in response to some someone that's you know trying to reduce me to short term or this that or the other i, I think it's an opportunity also to, to frankly market um you know that there is a better way i believe that I, I have a passion for this i've built my career on this and 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 i'm going to keep i'm going to keep fighting the good fight
0: well you know it's it's funny because somebody uh you know I, I put out a tweet i said hey i'm interviewing keith what do you want me to ask him somebody put out uh something a, a reply that said um that as a hockey player you took as much pride in racking up penalty minutes as you did scoring goals. <laughs> is that? Is that, I mean, is that true, first of all? And second of all, does that personality, I mean, does that reflect your personality kind of on and off
1: the ice? Well, I, I didn't take a lot of pride in my penalty minutes. I mean, it, it was usually a function of of me being, you know, overly aggressive or as my dad would say, you know, you're the kind of player that needs to play on the edge. But, you know, if you go too far, one way or the other, you're not going to be effective at all. And and I think that that's that's who I am. I mean, I, I don't, I, I certainly won't apologize for who I am, and I'm not going to change who I am. Um, that's how I like to play the game. And 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 I think if you play the game aggressively, and you can play it um, your own way, there's there's plenty of history uh, across a lot of different kinds of professions. Never mind our own. I think I just think that in our profession. People are a little bit more, a um, little bit more likely to be a little bit more polite, I suppose, or <laughs> a little bit more establishment, and that and that's the way that it might feel to some people.
0: Yeah, I mean, interesting. It's certainly, um, you know, a, a, a change of pace from from you know what you see on on CNBC or whatnot. You know, to me, I, you know, in thinking about this, one of the things I've noticed is kind of. Alongside a rise in kind of tribalism in politics, there's been this kind of growing tribalism in the markets too. Where you know it used to be that you'd say, "Hey, I'm bullish on this or that," and you're bearish. You know that that's what makes a market. And there was kind of you know uh, you'd at least have some respect for for the other side. It seems today that there's like you know there isn't that that respect that you know if you're bullish on something, the other side um is is just idiots. And you know so I think you know. Uh, do, do, do you see that at all? And and is that maybe part of you know uh, this con- confronting people's is there there are you know both sides um, to every trade, and, and, and you know to have that humility and respect for the other side um, is a healthy thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I, I have um, a lot of respect for you know repeatable process, repeatable process that's accurate. Over long periods of time, you know that that I have plenty of time for. That's why we've had uh, real conversations on Hedge TV. I think I've got uh, a, a plenty long track record to show. All the people that have played the game at a high level and played it across cycles, I think, is the most important thing. Certainly, rel- relative to how I. I play the game because I, I consider myself, you know, which I made up basically as a full cycle investor and getting the full investment cycle right is, is isn't always subject to huge debate. I think that what you're talking about is more interesting and I, I think you call the tribalism and then certainly the way that it, it appears to me is if you like I have a very consistent ability to trigger people and I, and I'm not trying to. Um, in fact, I'll trigger people that are bullish on gold for two years, um, bullishly. And now that I've recently sold all my gold miners and shorted them and then started selling gold, then I'll trigger those same people negatively. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, whether it's your politics or it's your feelings and relationships in your life, um, you know, really, we're at a point, you know, ideologically or po- politically and viscerally where people really are one way or the other. And that's just not who I am. I mean, I go both ways, Jesse, and I like it and I talk about it and I go both ways because the cycle does. It's just the rates of change. And the cycle is, you know, growth accelerates and it decelerates and inflation accelerates and then it decelerates. And that 100% of the time will reflect the direction that I'm invested in. And I'm happy to get in any, in, in any debate about that part of the process. I mean, I, I just think that when you're being reduced to name calling or whatever, I, I don't think that anybody's really trying to understand what, what you're talking about. They're just trying to say you suck because you don't you don't love what they love forever.
0: Well that that's to me I you know I I don't really I I I am kind of the opposite I try and avoid you know, these these Twitter debates and types of things. But I for me, it's fascinating to watch because when people do attack you and just name call, it can be a fantastic sentiment signal, right? I mean, when people actually don't want, don't have any interest in actually debating your position and just want to trash you as an idiot, <laughs> I mean, to me, that's one of the best sentiment signals out there. Um, but you make a good point too, that a lot of this, this tribalism comes down to people aren't willing to recognize that there's a time to be bullish, a time to be bearish. And, you know, for most most of these people they're they're bull you know perma-bullish or perma bearish on on whatever it is, and so when you change from you know being positive
1: to negative on something yeah, it triggers them yeah. um and I think that's all a function of the times that we're in i mean you really have um you know as you know we've talked about it quite a bit i mean yeah I think it's a very healthy thing you have participation in markets, and I mean broadly now, if you include Certainly, the, the the more the more um, one way, if you will, directionally group of people out there, which would be the Bitcoin maxis. I don't think I don't think gold is like an older crowd. Maybe they're less engaged. <laughs> I yeah. But I mean, it, it's you have participation or supply of opinions with a channel that is Twitter um, that is twenty four seven. So participation's great. Um, I live in the world of being macro aware and data dependent, apolitical, you know, these types of words don't always fit with um, large uh, arenas of, of participation where there may not be, from my perspective, uh, an awareness from a macro perspective or a historical time series perspective or the cycles perspective. Uh, and I think that a lot of those things for me are uh, opportunities on the educational front and, I will try to like I'm not always like being a, a you know being a you know the aggressor I, I I do think that there's a great opportunity in educating people about what I think they prefer to be aware. I mean the risks are, are omnipresent and I think that people would prefer to be aware than unaware. Absolutely
0: and and uh you know I mean there's uh I, there's a you know pros and cons to to handling it uh you know in a in a variety of different ways. I I'm curious as to how did you, you know, we talked about you You went to Yale, played hockey. How did you, where was it that you first became interested in, in markets?
1: Uh, it was my first internship on Wall Street. I was working for um, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, David Williams, or his nickname is Tiger Williams, not the hockey player uh, on the NHL side, but he was a former Yale hockey captain. So like most, um, or I shouldn't say most, but a lot of us, I, I was fortunate to be, you know, associated with a connection where I got that internship, and that's where I really found. Like up until that point, I'm I'm just a guy from Thunder Bay, Ontario. You know, I'm not going to reduce my my life to like being part of some class. I was quite happy. You know, my dad was the you know, my dad was a firefighter. My mom was a teacher, and and I show up in 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 at Yale on campus. I thought that this was like the industrial mecca of the world. I mean. Uh, So by the time I had this Wall Street internship, I wrote a book about it. Actually, I was completely a fish out of water. I'm wearing my like junior hockey Canadian like outfits, silk shirts with like, um, you know, I guess the Eagle went over well with the Americans with these bald Eagle ties and stuff like this. It, I just did, it, it was just kind of funny. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I guess embarrassing, <laughs> but um, I, I did fall in love with the pace of it. Um, I love keeping score. Of course uh, the time stamping that I always talk about was really a function of my first job on wall street, Jesse, which is, I'm sure you remember these times, but like I had a, a timestamp machine and I had black tickets and I had red tickets. And since we traded only for hedge funds, uh, we were basically like an outsourced trading desk. All I was doing all day long was taking like long and short tickets and time stamping them for guys like Ken Griffin from Blue Ridge, who was just starting his fund. Then Tiger, um, they call him Tiger too, as well, because he was the head trader for Tiger management. Uh, and he started the, his own company. So to this day, it's still called Williams Trading, but, but I loved it. I loved seeing how people made decisions, you know, how, how I was really interested in, in the, in the real game within the game, which is the real, uh, debate, which is, you know, you see a, a, a smart person put in a buy ticket and at the same time somebody's putting in the red ticket, the sell ticket. Um, so that's when I got into it and I, I never looked back.
0: Well, yeah, I, was, I, I started running tickets myself, so I, <laughs> I, know, that, uh, I know that that, uh, feeling in that time period. Um, so uh, this guy, Williams, did he approach you and say, you know, I really think that, uh, you know, this, this career would suit you or is it, did you approach him and say, this is something I think I'd be good at?
1: I, he, I mean, he was very active in recruiting uh, Yale hockey players. You know, so, so I, you know, and he he'd tell you that, you know, hockey players are of a certain uh, mindset, and I think you're you're going to work hard and you're going to learn it um, quickly, and, and 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 you'd enjoy this, and I did. Um, from there, um, I became an analyst on Wall Street, and 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 I also had the ability to trade. So some people try to, like it's a bad word, like, oh, you dirty trader, you, like, it's not, a, it's, I just know how to trade. I mean, if you, if you could, if you could be a long-term investor that knew how to trade, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Um, you know, if you could be a, a long-term anything, wouldn't you prefer to have more skills? I mean, that to me, those days were foundational, suffice to say, in terms of both the behavioral side of the game and actually executing on it. So, um, you yeah, know, I, I, I was very fortunate to have that experience that, that Tiger gave me.
0: And so how did you get from from there to Hedgeye? Walk me through that that time frame.
1: Well, I went from uh, my first job on Wall Street, because I was an internship. My first job on Wall Street was on the big trading desk and the big, you know, on the big floor at, at Credit Suisse um, that was prior to the DLJ merger in 1999. And I did my rotation, you know, the program basically get hired on as a, as a newbie and you, you learn, you know, what's going on on, on the trading floor. Back then um, it was the IPO bubble craze. So I was, you know, literally pulling reds out of the mail room. Um, you know, again, just reading prospectuses and and trying to get the five or 10 whatever bringing in the morning, you know, I was on the hedge fund desk and um, I was basically you know, telling you know some of the more, I guess, relevant investors in the world what what I thought was going on with each and every one of these companies, with no experience whatsoever. So I, I did get a pretty a quick crash course. I'd stay there till you know they, the lights would go off, and I'd be first in in the morning. That was kind of my my thing. Like if you can just outwork people. That might mine the gap or close the gap between people's, you know, people with experience and knowledge, which I had none. Um, you know, and that worked, you know, so, so so different hedge funds were interested in hiring me as, as a junior analyst. And then that's how I was on my way. By the year 2000, I became an analyst, a consumer analyst at a, a hedge fund that was called Dawson Sandberg, but then was splitting up into Pequot Capital and what became Dawson Giamalva and then Dawson Herman. So I was very lucky to was, I was one of the first people, you know, as an analyst at a hedge fund that was effectively starting a new and um, up until, you know, to make a long story short, I, I, they gave me my own book, quote unquote, a uh, carve out of the fund. Did really well with that. Ended up starting my own fund in 06 with a guy by the name of Harry Schwefel, um, who subsequently uh, became CIO of Point Seventy Two, And um, then I, went to when we split ways he went there i went to carlisle when carlisle um, the private equity firm was launching their hedge fund in 07 um i was you know they hired me to run a long short equity and um i thought it was the greatest job on earth and my six months into it we blew up the hedge fund our credit guys did so everyone got fired uh, i got let go earlier because a little earlier than most on november the 2nd 2007 i got fired for being too bearish that was um that was a, an interesting time to get fired for being too bearish. Of course, the S&P was down um, 6%, I think, in November of 07 and never went up again, really, up until April of 09. So um, I started Hedgeye basically because I got fired, Jesse. So I, I had a non-compete and started Hedgeye and, um, at the end of 07, uh, blogging about you know, my trading, my own personal accounts. And actually, that's what I'm still doing today. I'm still, you know, doing it with a lot more firepower and analytical bandwidth um, and, a, and a much better process. Wow. Did I um, did I not know what I didn't know from a macro perspective back then than, than I do today? Well, I mean, we're all
0: constantly learning. If you're not, uh, you're in trouble. And so, I mean, that that that's why I'm doing this right now. Is you know, the, <laughs> why I do the podcast um, is to, to be constantly learning. So, so you started Hedgeye partly because of the non compete, but really, what was the what was the the impetus? What were you trying to accomplish? Was it just you know to to give people an inside look as to what you were doing? I mean, was there a bigger a bigger
1: uh, impetus there? Yeah, I always found it, uh, I always found the the dynamic, the cultural dynamic in the hedge fund community interesting, and, and one that I, I I felt like there was an opportunity to take advantage of. Like for at least when I was in the hedge fund business, it was dog eat dog. Hedge funds, um, those two words together were largely considered by the outside world as bad words. Even on Wall Street, they're probably considered bad words unless they were your clients. Um, so what I wanted to do, like anything I've ever done, is 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 play the game out loud and 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 say, okay, look. What if you had a world-class hedge fund that everybody could look inside? That's why I called it hedge-eye, like if you could look inside. So the transparency component is embedded in the in the name hedge-eye. I thought about that for a long time. And, um, you know, have it transparent, accountable, and trustworthy in a way that quite literally everything you did, you know, okay, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to have a lot of wins too. But from a process perspective, everybody could really battle test why you're making the decisions that you're making. And to me, that's been like that's been if, if I have a blessing in life, it's been able to for 13 years now, uh, much like you just said, like I get to learn the game out loud. I get to build this place alongside tremendously talented um, professionals that have been on Wall Street in some cases for a long time, in some cases for no time at all. And they're learning from all of us. And we have this great um, learning ecosystem. I, I, I guess, you know, as, as, as Peter Sange, who wrote the fifth discipline would, would call it, we have a learning organization and, and that's, that's to me right now, the biggest opportunity is that we're learning faster. We're failing faster. It's okay to do that in life. You should fail fast. That's the only way you learn. And um, my community of, of power users and people that love me and hate me and everything else, it's only making us stronger. It's making the, the, what I thought we should build in the beginning, which is, again, if you could look inside of it, what would you see? I, I think people are liking what they see a lot more than what I could have ever imagined Have started to build back when I started. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that
0: was going to be my next question. Is, is you, you said you basically started just blogging about how you were trading. Yep. And obviously, Hedgeye has grown a lot over that time. How, how has the product itself changed uh, you know, over the past 10 years? Well, I mean,
1: the the stock picking component, which is what I did in the first part of my career, I mean, and we have 40 different analysts that, you know, have longer term views. And that's where, like, I completely disagree with the the label of being a trader. I can risk manage and trade around core positions, which are intermediate to long term in nature. Those are the specific words to define what we do. And that was exactly what I did with Harry. Like, we would take very concentrated positions with a two to three year view and we would trade them actively that's what real hedge funds do. I mean, if you do it really well, by the way, you know, the guy who's Harry's boss, you know, owns the New York Mets right now for a reason. I mean, there, there's a profitable way to, um, to, if something's going from 10 to 15, I don't want to make five bucks. I want to make seven or eight or 10. And that's, that's really like on that side of it. Um, we built that out. So now, you know, in the hedge eye in the future state, you know, God willing, we'll have upwards of a hundred analysts instead of 40, we'll cover every single sector. Um, but over the years in between, um, then in here, basically what I tr- committed um, the rest of my or the most recent you know, component of my life learning or professional learnings to is this macro research process, which largely augments your ability to pick sectors, countries, sectors and ultimately stocks. And, um, you know, we got into that, you know, a while back. But now I think we're doing a much better job um Communicating what the four quadrant process is, or what the full cycle investing process is. Um, so now, what we ultimately have is basically a top to bottom or bottom up stock picking and top down macro. It's fully integrated of what I call a full investing cycle process.
0: Well, and I want to get into the uh, the, the the quadrants. Before I do, I want to come back to to something you said though about trading. How you know hedge fund is kind of a you know a, a, a uh, a you know a, a, a phrase that uh, people look down upon, um, but so is trading, uh, right? And and to me, you know, I, I think about uh, I, you know I I started studying trading a long time ago because I I realized quickly as a value investor I'm going to run into a ton of value traps if I don't figure out uh, you know kind of a trading overlay that's going to prevent me from from uh, you know buying some of these things that that don't work out. Um, why why do you know? Why do you think it is, I guess, that so many people ha, you know, look down upon trading even as just an overlay to a bigger macro or fundamental process?
1: I think it makes them feel better about themselves. I mean, I think a, <laughs> yeah. that's, um, that, you know, that, that's life, right? I mean, if, if you are of a certain way and somebody's of a different way. There are long histories to suggest that people like to say that you know we're we're the, we're right and you're you're over here and, and that's okay. I'm totally I'm totally it's, if anything I'm uh, one of the people in life that's been battle tested for that. My whole life I've been told that I'm not good enough or wasn't going to make it. And now if, if, if with the macro presses that we have that I put intermediate to long term and immediate term all three durations that really matter in macro understanding the long cycle the intermediate term. Um, cyclical moves and and also the short term trades. You know, if, if reducing that to, to Keith McCullough as a trader, then I have a lot of I have a lot of runway of opportunity because my competition has no idea what I actually do. Um, so that's that's a good thing I think. Um, but you know, another a longstanding another way to put it is, you know, a, a, an investor is just a short term trader that's underwater. Um, you know, people like. <laughs> you're you know if you, if you if you could you would if, if your first trade was always right um you, you would and that's just not reality um so i think a lot of people are more comfortable saying well you know i'm longer term i don't have to uh it just make some feel better
0: yeah and it probably does come back to you know what we were talking about before that kind of tribalism that you know people are not only just perma bullish or perma bearish on something you know they're they're, they're buying hold, uh, in that thing rather than being flexible. Um, and so anybody who is flexible is, is wrong, is an idiot. Um, <laughs> let's, let, let's get into this. You know, you, you have this model that's made up of four quadrants. Um, what, where, first of all, before we get into the, the model itself, where did this, where did it come from? I guess, how did you first develop this, this model?
1: Well i started um i mean everything starts with experience right most most things um unbeknownst to i guess the textbook people or the people that think that economies and markets work like they do in your econ one o one textbook and you know I'm well versed in that i have a I have a degree from uh, a school in New Haven that teaches that coherently um you know at the end of the day that's not that's not the way that the real world is i mean you you learn by doing and I learned how to model companies using what we would call, uh, Harry and I would eventually call when we started Falcon Hedge Partners, which is our hedge fund, um, the three pod process. So instead of the quads, and we still talk about the three pods today internally, three pods being pod number one is revenue, and it's all rate of change driven. So revenue, are you accelerating or, or decelerating revenues, cash flows or earnings is pod number two. And then pod number three is your capital allocation. So those three pods are still today. What if you ask any of my analysts, and or if you listen to any of our now I I, I, um, I let people subscribe to our morning meetings so they can listen to it in the flesh. I mean, this is what we talk about. We talk about accelerations and decels and revs and cash flows, and that's where it came from. So I said, hey, you know, why don't we build this out for macro where I basically substitute revenues with GDP, and I substitute cash flows or earnings. With inflation because that's what's going to drive you know the the cost of living for example in that economy and um that's that's where it started it started with a model that i'd use successfully and applied uh, materially in public markets and um then started to build it out and lo and behold it started to work it, it had you know again it didn't it took until it was kind of interesting and humbling that when ray Dallier wrote principles and before people like lose it like, oh, he's calling himself right now. I'm actually, no, I'm not. I mean, it's, I actually think we're better than he is today because we're bolted to the chair. This is a job that requires 4.30 wake ups every morning, late nights, and you got to do it and do it and do it. And you got to grind and grind and grind because it's a data intensive business that requires a lot of bean counting. So it isn't exactly something that you can do when you're 99 years old. It's something that you have to be committed to doing every single day. And that that's where i'm at today now now we do 50 different countries jesse as i'm sure you're, you're aware aware so what's most interesting is measuring and mapping you know which we can go through the four quadrants in a, in a in a place like Mexico or a place like uh, Indonesia, a place where I don't have a long track record of being successful on the investing side because I've been around for enough, you know, 20 or 40 years doing it with this model. But I'm quite excited about the next 20 years of my career to apply, you know, what we've done basically with the G20 countries uh, to the next 30 countries after that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and so just do me a favor, and, and so those the three pods again are revenue uh, cash flow, and I lost the last one.
1: capital allocation, so capital taking allocation. yeah. yeah. How, how is the company's free cash flow marrying up to their returns on invested capital, and should they or should not they not reinvest in the business or buy back stock, et cetera
0: And so translating that to the macro framework is you know re- revenues to our you know GDPs essentially. cash flow is, did you say
1: inflation? Inflation, and so I only okay. use, and then, and for the, you know, what would be pod three, we so we call this our GIP model, growth, inflation, so the equivalent of revenues and cash flows are growth and inflation. And instead of capital allocation, we use government policy. So it's called our GIP model, or GIP model. Uh, when I reverse it, it's perfect for governments because it's our PIG model. You know, so uh, basically governments are very predictable. When we see, um, when we see the rate of change of growth and inflation slow at the same time, which is quad four, governments 100% of the time print money and devalue or try to devalue the currency. So we're front running the growth and inflation front run, not only what asset allocation you should have in what country, what sectors you should be in, long and short, what stocks and styles, high beta, low beta, high, you know, big cap, small cap, et cetera. But they also front run the central bank. And that's why this model is so valuable because for a long time, you know, people have said, well, but the fed, you know, you can't fight the fed. It's like, I, I don't, I don't, I know that's a wall street talking point. Um, so let's just park that over there in that parking lot. I like to park actually at the far back corner of our own parking lot. Cause I like to get in more steps in a day. So I've always parked in a different place. So let's just not talk about fighting the fed. Let's talk about front running the fed. Let's have a model that again, causally understands not only asset returns, but the behavior of the central bank.
0: Well, and the, and the central banks have taught us that they're very predictable, right? They're going to when when it, GDP does X, you know, they're going to do Y. And, and so it's, that's, that's not super difficult, but I think, it, you know, what's, what's important is to have this kind of a framework so that you are prepared for how things are evolving. So, so Talk me through i guess the the four quadrants um and and so those would be g d p rate of change, inflation rate of change, government policy in some sort of a rate of change, and then i say the fourth one again
1: that's 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 it well the, the, those are the, three the, the three
0: the three okay. mo-
1: gotcha the model on the so if you were to look at our four quadrant model it's it's a two by two model just using growth and inflation. And again, the, the modeling premise is, as I always say, the secret to the universe uh, or an in infinite powers, which is a great math book that uh, everybody should read by S- uh, Steven Strogatz. Um, yeah, he called it that. So I borrowed that. I like to borrow things from great one line. So you love that secret to the universe. is calculus. Like how many storytellers on Wall Street know that uh, they prefer their narratives over the numbers, of course. But if you take your two by two model, you got your growth and inflation. You got four scenarios in rate of change. You have you have um, quad one. Where you have the rate of change of inflation is slowing and the real real growth is accelerating. That's the best for humanity, never mind value as a, an investing style, which to a lot of people is now their humanity. Uh, quad two. Quad two is when growth and inflation, you're, 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 the cycle's more obviously accelerating to more people. So both growth and inflation are accelerating at the same time. So quad two is when even the financials go up. So you know, again, if you're a value buyer coming out of what I'll get to, Quad four, you know, you're going to really get paid there because interest rates go up, gold, real rates go up, gold goes down, treasuries, long-term treasuries go down. So what we've done is we've also back tested each quad against everything that you could have an opinion on. That's why I have so many opinions that uh, that that can 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 trigger people. Uh, quad three is where you have economic stagflation, or you have the rate of change of inflation accelerating, and real growth, unfortunately for the people, is slowing. That's that's actually been. The modal outcome for um, for a lot of central banking activities over the intermediate to longer term. And then, of course, there's quad four, which is the danger zone where you have neither growth nor inflation accelerating because both growth and inflation are decelerating. That's called deflation. So now we have a convenient way to talk about specifically and mathematically daily. You get daily data points on these things. You know, we run predictive tracking algorithms to measure and map it daily, um, every day. There's no there's no opinion on that. I'm just making it loud about you know and using these things that we've called Quad One, Quad Two, Quad Three, and Quad Four, and back tested literally everything against it. Um, and to me, that's a tremendously valuable macro awareness for for people if they didn't have it in the past.
0: Absolutely, and I think that that is you know what distinguishes your process from so many other things, right? I mean, most people don't even have any type of uh, a framework for, for understanding where we are um, in the cycle. Now talk me through, I guess, how we've gone through the quadrants, I guess, from maybe a year ago, um, you know, to, to today.
1: I guess the most uh, the easiest way for people maybe that haven't heard this before to, um, to think about it is where where did where were you like draw a sign curve on a on a piece of paper so that it's there mentally as well. For me, my challenge is all I think about is is rate of change and where are you on the sign curve and most importantly where are you going next. So you can you can identifiably put in let's use the U.S. economy. Um, it peaked in Q3 of 2018. The U.S. economic cycle peaked in rate of change terms. So that means the GDP growth on a year-over-year basis peaked at 3.3% which is a little higher than where it's peaked over prior cycles because we had pro cyclical tax reform. I could go through all the different reasons why I don't really care why, you know, I I care less and less why the older and fatter I get really, Um, you know, but that's, you could draw you put a dot, that was the peak of the cycle. The first quad four was actually in Q4 of 2018, which you'll recall was a, was a shit show basically for most people that were long everything and unaware. Um, That was also a great time um, when the cycle peaks to start to buy things like long dated, you know, treasury bonds, gold, housing stocks, you know things of that nature that are rate sensitive to the downside. So that that cycle, you, the peak of the sine curve, Jesse, was Q, uh, Q3 of 2018. The low of the economic cycle was during the very short recession uh, that started in Q2 of 2020. So everything in between is rate of change, quad three and quad four slowing to that point. All COVID did was it accelerated um, and pulled forward the bottom of the sine curve or the bottom of the economic cycle.
0: Okay. So, so now we are in, you know, is it quad one
1: where where growth and, and inflation are going to start rising again? Yeah. Well, uh, quad two quad two is where we have that. So we, for the next two quarters, we, we have, we're now casting growth and inflation accelerating quad two um, which is why i you know, it took me two years, but, um you know, basically sold and now i'm going to short the things that i was long and those include treasuries gold utility stocks um because again we back tested every single quad against everything that ticks um which we can get into uh can um i guess can uh tickle the fancy of certain bitcoiners or it can can re- <laughs> um but it's a back back-test. then backtests back tests don't lie people do
0: yeah and, and and so i mean so that that quad informs your your investing clearly um
1: 100 like don't start anywhere else whereas like i wouldn't um I, that's where i start think of it like a fish finder um so this is you know if we're a competent fisherman uh we have all the equipment we have a great fish finder we have all the rigs and gear and great boat and we know where to go that doesn't mean we're gonna have a great day on the lake um but if we can really zero that in at least we know what lake we're going to uh, let's start with that. Uh, the locals would know that anyway. So locally, I want to know what I could catch here. And that is, I'm only interested in buying things that go up in quad two and selling things, that go, selling things short that go down in quad two. And then so
0: with this macro framework, um, do you apply kind of that micro framework that inspired it? You go back to that revenue rate of change, cash flow to look for individual stock ideas?
1: hundred percent. That's exactly Well, most important. I, I focused our analysts on doing that. So, you know, doing what we do on the macro team is obviously a full-time job doing this across 50 countries now. Um, but now I'm pushing the, I, I just push, push, push. I push the analysts to get out of ideas that worked in quad four, for example, and quad four, like, as I mentioned, utilities work, consumer staples work, housing stocks work. So pushing the analysts to not only get us out of those, as full cycle investors, again, trying to realize a return in a housing stock from, if you bought them, just go back and look at the returns, (laughs) Q4 of of 18 and sold and started selling them. Now you'd be very, very happy. You'll be very unhappy if you don't sell housing stocks and the U S 10 year yield busts a move to one and a half or 2%. And that's, so I'm trying to get my analysts to give me, okay, what are the, what are the housing shorts that would, you know, back to the pods that would show a revenue deceleration with margin compression. And there are going to be a lot of housing stocks that actually do that um, and and housing related stocks. Like Home Depot, for example, has basically what we call the base defects, um, the revenue comparisons in Q2 of 2020. Like, forget about it. They're not going to be, they're only going to slow against that. So we know that. The question is, you know, timing the stock right on the short side because everybody owns it. And um, in a momentum market like this, and with a lot of retail investors chasing names that they quote unquote know, like they're all like Peter Lynch. Um, you know, there, there's big opportunity in timing these things right, but you gotta, you gotta do a, a lot of bean counting on those revenues and cash flow lines to time it right.
0: Well, that's interesting to me that, you know, yeah, there's the fundamental side of it, right? Understanding how those things are, are evolving. But I, I'm also curious to know what is your, what is the trading framework that you overlay? Are there, there are obviously trading rules that you use, um, you know, to help, help with the timing.
1: Yeah, especially on the shorts. I mean, on the shorts, I mean, I use a series of rules. I mean, if something is signaling higher highs um, and it's been a bullish trend, again, just to use Home Depot, for example, uh, it's been a great stock and it should have been a great stock. I mean, I think it, I think when investors look back across the full investing cycle, a lot of what I'm saying about the rates of change of growth and inflation really tell you this, the real story on why you did or n- did not get paid on, on your stock pick. You know, for a long time, uh, now and this irritates people as well I call I call people captain stock picker or, or macro tourist why? well because that's who I was I mean I was completely unaware from a macro perspective. I was confusing my stock picking ability with the cycle um, you got to be really careful with that so if something continues to signal higher highs and it, it could even be a fraud I mean we've seen that in in this in this market where companies or potentially frauds, and they'll they'll make all time highs despite that. They'll make all time highs dis- despite anything. So we use that you know, as, a, as a good stop loss rule. Don't even get involved until the thing, the bloody thing, starts signaling in rate of change terms lower highs. Um, people are going to say, well, how do you do that? Well, we have a thing called the risk range process that a lot of people subscribe to uh, that shows you the daily range, and quite simply, if the if the top end of the range is a lower high than the prior one, now we have an interesting entry point to start to consider. You know, a variety of strategies, either shorting the stock outright or, or starting to look at, um, you know, buying puts or a series of of, of options, um, you know, depending on what the catalyst is in terms of timing for that short. Yeah, is
0: that I mean that's very interesting to me because one of the the simplest things I think, you know, would be uh, and most important things investors should learn is just how to how to appraise momentum, right? You you find a cheap stock you want to buy, but has really strong downward momentum, you, you know, you probably want to wait a little while. Um is, is that kind of, you know, the these risk ranges do they kind of help identify momentum to to try
1: and understand like where you are in that trend? Yes. Yeah, and thanks for asking that cuz I mean that's like if 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 I take my day, like my workload in my day between 4:30 in the morning and 11 Eastern, I spend 8020 rule at at least 80% of the time trying to answer the question that you just asked me. Uh, the other part of the time, like getting the cycle right to me is actually it's it's hard work but it's not um, hard to comprehend once once you're on a path. The the hard thing to get right is timing securities right down to the screws, like to a small cap gold mining stock on the short side. That's tough. Um, so you gotta you gotta be very aware of the volatility of, of the thing that we're talking about. So I measure and map every single thing that moves on a three factor basis using a, the simplest of models that I use. Time market timing model bad bad words for people. You know, some people say market timing those that's evil traders bad, you know, and what they really mean by that is that they're probably bad at that. um Or they're they haven't really tried it. It's actually a lot of fun, uh because you fail fast, and you get better over time. um But price, the three factors are price volume and volatility. And it's really overweight. It's an overweight on the third thing, the volatility of the price. Because if the volatility of the price undergoes what I call a phase transition from you know down volatility to up volatility, then that's the beginning of the end for that stock price or that ETF price or that whatever it is, so that security. And that's where we spend a lot of time. I mean, this is basically, you know, you're into the into the thralls of of fractalhood or, or Benoit Mandelbrot, when you're starting to think about, you know, what is um, episodic and non-trending volatility, or what is the beginning, a beautiful beginning of a fractal, or the begin a similar set that gives birth to uh, to a new trend, and and that's what we're always looking for, because trends trend, and you know the turns. Or phase transitions as you call them in anything else in life, something thermodynamic or whatever, you want to boil a frog, go for it. I mean it's it's you want to identify phase transitions because that's where things that have gone down for a long period of time go up and then they start to go up faster and then they go up for a longer period of time, and vice versa. Things that have gone up for a long period of time start to go down a little bit, then they go down all at once, and they go down for a long period of time. And that's that's why you know I take Great. I guess I take great pride in being called a shorter term or longer term because I think if you can do that right over the course of your career, and I'm talking about 20, 40, 50 years, you're going to be much happier than with the alternative.
0: Well, I, I that reminds me of a quote um from Paul Tudor Jones i think it was from Market Wizards that really resonated with me the first time i read it which you know he says i think most traders are trying to catch the meat of the move they're trying to trend follow and they say you can't really you know uh, catch turns and he said well i've spent the last 10 years you know catching the turns and so um you know it, it, me that, that as a, a kind of a natural contrarian, I'm always looking for for the turns. And so, yeah. I you know, my question to you, I guess, is about how do you what do you look for in terms of volatility, right? In terms of price ranges and and volume, those things can kind of you know you can see patterns. But what what I, what do you look for specifically in terms of volatility for, to understand where you are in the trend?
1: Well, that so there. I mean, I first of all, you have to um, have a framework, like anything else, like the four quad process. Um, I have three regimes of volatility that I really care about. Uh, one is investable volatility. So investable like a certified monkey, and you'll find plenty of them on CNBC can make money picking stocks. That's when the VIX is, we'll use the VIX. U.S. equity volatility is a, is a simple example. Um, when the VIX is between nine and somewhere in the mid-teens, 15, let's say nine to 15 or 16, then again, a certified banjo playing monkey can pick the stock, buy every gam dip and make money, all right? Where the monkey gets in trouble is the moving monkey. I call it affectionately, and some people get upset by that, but it's okay. We're all learning here. Um, when when you move in from that phase into you know, phase transition and what I call the chop, you're like into the high teens and the high twenties is, is the next regime of volatility. You know that's a tradable. What we call the chop bucket or the you know the, the tradable regime. You go from investable to tradable to the wrong bucket, which I have a variety of names. One's got four letters and starts with F. And that F bucket is north of 30 vol or VIX in this case, using this example, everybody dies big time. Like if you came into that hurricane, and again, you should use things in natural life space as the example. Like when you're going from, Chop vol or second regime vol to to phase three into that into that into that bucket. It's just like a hurricane or an avalanche. If you're not prepared at the, at the particular point, as Mandelbrot would say, that the risk comes on, then you lose a lot of money with a lot of other people all at the same time. And that's those are the places that that Tudor Jones has made a lot of money on the short side. I have too. Uh, and conversely, when you come out of that bucket and you tip back into the chop, and then you're heading towards investable vol. Um, you make a ton of money across the full investing cycle. That's why, again, bring this full circle. What I'm really trying to do is have the vol of vol, as Mandelbrot would say, or anybody who's adept in in studying markets from a fractal perspective, the vol of vol or the volatility of volatility front runs the next phase transition. The phase transition is the next economic regime or the quads. So that's why I always say my signal front runs the quads.
0: So you run um, the vol of volatility on individual stocks, then?
1: Yep, yep, and that's where it's it's much more fun because the because the bands um, are are much different. I just gave you a simple like I gave you a simple one to the VIX, but if you want to use something, yeah, something like even Apple volatility. I mean, currently it's in the it's it's in the high thirties to low forties. And it's it's actually a, a chop what we call the chop bucket for Apple that's tradable with a bullish bias and once it's not it's going to be outright shortable with a bearish bias and that's when you know, Apple Vol would have to break out into the basically into the mid fifties is where its wrong bucket is and you could actually go back and look you know backcheck me on that I mean I back-tested everything nothing that comes out of my mouth uh, if it's not nothing that comes out of my mouth is has not been back-tested. If, if it does come out of my mouth and it hasn't been backtested, my team's listening to this right now, and they're testing it. Because, <laughs> yeah. so, again, I, I want to be specific. I don't want to be, you know, ranting with narratives on what could, should, or would happen. I want to talk about what happens to Apple when it gets into this volatility regime. And what happens, you know, if it's 54, say, or higher, that's where people die.
0: Yeah. You know, I, it's, I, I, that's fascinating for me to hear that. I I think people who, you know, some of the biggest blowups I've seen in markets are people who go into short selling without a process. And, you know, I've had Bill Fleckenstein on, um, the podcast a couple of times before, and, you know, he talks about having a, uh, a framework around short selling, which, you know, I want to shoot these things in the back. I don't want to be a hero (laughs) and shoot them when they're, when they're, when they're soaring. Um, you know, and, and to me that with, That's kind of what you're doing with this volatility framework. Is saying there's there's a time to when it when it's safe to short these things. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I don't want to step in front of them.
1: Yeah, you don't like I mean, let's 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 start with what not to do. And I'm sure Bill's learned these lessons over time. He didn't think that way all the time. Nobody has. You have to you have to short things with live ammo to learn how to short things. Okay, so again, what not to do? Don't short something on valuation alone. The reality is that it's getting more expensive, for example, because pod one revenues are about to accelerate at a faster rate and pod two cash flows are going to accelerate in kind. Great example this year is Zoom or pick any stock that we that we liked that was the uh, recipient um, in a positive way of of, of the COVID pandemic. You know, so, so you don't short those until we get closer to when they have to cycle against that. And guess who knows that first? Well, it's the volatility signal, not you. You know, so we know when Zoom has their toughest comparisons, Q2 of 2021. So now the clock's on. So now Zoom's got to prove. And we just sold it, we, or I did. You know, in terms of like that's a good example of a stock that I didn't, I didn't care what the price or the valuation was. And when I say that, people, some people pull their hair out because they went to business school and they were taught, well, it's so expensive, it can't do this anymore. Well, it does do this. And 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 so, so I, I think about. The what not to do is don't short on valuation. Don't short a certain sector or style or stock that's got positive one month and three month price momentum when it's a long in that economic quad or quad two. Like if you're shorting an energy stock right now, you need your head ready. Um, You know it's got positive one going on three month price momentum, which the machine loves. It has falling volatility and it's a long in quad two. So so again, when I think about ideas. I think a lot of them, like in terms of my bet, I think a lot of Jesse in about my battle scars and what not to do, and that's why my process is re-engineered to not make the same mistakes over and over again.
0: Absolutely, and I mean that's how you know we, we make progress in anything. It's hopefully <laughs> we learn it from our mistakes. Um, you know, I, I want to come back to also the uh, you know the this individual stock selection too, because that's really kind of what I'm, I'm most curious about. I love that there's the macro framework for it. Um, but you, you mentioned zoom, for example, you know, um, the, the growth rate revenue growth rate, is going to start to decelerate. Um, when do you, I mean, you've targeted, what would you say, uh, Q2 of next year or Q, yeah. Q1 of next year? Um, you know that's going so when do you anticipate the market starts to to discount that i mean how do you how do you factor that in
1: well the market i mean this this part i mean it's not um as a younger man. let's just start with that or as a younger bear um i, I would i would want to run down there and you know short everything i could all at the same time because i knew that that was coming well that that's wrong um you know it's okay to let the market you know not, let you know when it's okay and 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 that's That's really what I think about. So Zoom's upcoming quarter—it's actually today—they're going to report. Um, You know, we have a—we have a. First of all, we have an analyst with a with with their own model on it. We've been right on the numbers for a while now on the upside. What I really want to hear is him come off that conference call and tell me for the first time where the rate of change on his earnings upside tilts in rate of change terms to the downside—not negative revenue growth. You know, again making up numbers let's say you grew 100% revenue growth and then you grew 200% revenue growth what i really want to hear from them is what quarter they're going to grow 175% revenue growth you know cuz that's the first sequential rate of change now you might if they say that on the conference call you might miss the first 20% of the move but you're not going to wear the last 80% of the ramp up your you know what on the short side <laughs> um because you can, once that, once you determine that the rate of change is decelerating, it, a great short right now is, is Netflix. Like we know Netflix is going to decel from now until they lap those COVID comps in Q1 and Q2 next year. So that's an easy short. I mean, they've already told us that, you know, so the stock makes lower highs every day, not, not randomly. It's doing that in an up market because the market's got it right. Uh, so I, I'm okay with having some patience in the last one to three months on a short, and that's usually the toughest window—the last one to three months—because um, that's really what the market's really telling you over time on that is that um, the, the market's very good at, at front-running the first uh, or the initial deceleration from an epic acceleration in revenues. Well, you know, a lot of these,
0: uh, stay at home stocks, it's curious to me that you're looking at Zoom and Netflix, you know, Peloton is another one that comes to mind that, you know, that probably pulled forward at just a ton of demand, you know, for the last 12 months. And it seems like they probably have a demand black hole at some point in the future. So that's, That, that that's what the analysts are looking at and trying to, to, to find that D cell. And, you know, then you factor in the valuations, which have gone totally nuts. And, uh, you know, <laughs> The 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 price um, you know reconciliation
1: on the D cell could be dramatic. So, uh, yeah. and you can you can you wait, in particular for tech cycles. Um, you know, this is only the third one that I'll be so fortunate to be able to to short when it comes. You know time to do so tech broadly. For now, tech is a long in, in the quad that we're in, quad two, but systematically certain names are becoming shorts. That's where there's what, what we call asymmetry in your long short portfolio. That's awesome. Um, but it's also the beginning of the end for the big thing, which is everything else. And um, it's an interesting thing with tech, because tech and communications because the non-COVID recipients, like take boring, older, smaller cap tech, all of the above. I mean, they really still have easy comparisons because they slowed during COVID. And um, so that's where you got this yin and yang within the sector factor. Um, but finding individual names inside of it has always been our bailiwick. So we stick with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to come back to, you mentioned um, Benoit Mandelbrot uh, a couple of times Um uh, how is he uh, clearly he's been an influence on uh on your on your thinking uh what is it i guess what uh, what was most important about uh, you know his his work or what has had the biggest impact on on your process about it
1: i mean in a lot of ways i mean he was he was at yale uh when all the linear econs i'll call them uh, to be respectful were at yale you know the guy was considered a little nuts for a reason um because he just thought differently but he really thought of, uh, about it from a practitioner's perspective so from the initial days where he you know took ibm's mainframe computers and basically just studied the prices of everything from cotton on back again in the commodity space to just really study what is the relationship between price and signal and what he came to conclude is much like in fractal math um you know, it's the same thing you know similar sets develop you know causal factors and then when they develop for real it makes volatility not episodic and non-trending which volatility or phase transition typically is but it makes it the beautiful new beginning of something new and that's um you have to wait a lot of time to to find those because most most of the time what Mandelbrot also observed which is very much um consistent with you know natural life is that there's a lot of brownian motion or there's a lot of nothingness there's a lot of fake your head, you know, there's a lot of fake news. God knows that uh, in this day and age, but there's a lot of non-signal, and um, you know, that to me uh, spoke to me in a lot of different ways because I really didn't pay attention to him until you know 2006 when I was starting my fund, uh, my hedge fund, and then throughout 07 when I was you know, thinking about you know what am I going to do with hedge eye and how am I going to articulate the process. And you know, it always thought in rate of change terms. So this really put a gave me a volatility component to that, and a and a real human one. You know, one that I can be a humble servant to, and not telling the signal what to do, but waiting on it, and waiting and waiting and waiting. A lot of this game across the full investing cycle is just doing that. It's having the patience, you know, to actually wait for something that's real and new.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a great point. I wrote a blog post recently just, you know, from when you when you study, you know, all these guys, uh, you know, who've been uh, incredibly successful over, you know, long periods of time, whether it's Warren Buffett or you know, uh, Jim Rogers or anybody, you know, they all say that just, you know, that very thing that, you know, you have to be, you have to learn how to do nothing, right. (laughs) You have to, um, learn how to just be patient and, and wait for those opportunities that come around. It's fascinating to me that you've, you've, uh, found a, uh, kind of a a technical signal to help you, you know, with that process.
1: Um, yeah, I think if you look, if you, and a lot of people ask me about what, like, how did you build the signal? I mean, it's all there in his book, the, but like in in everything in in life too. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's I think Picasso said this, and I'm certainly not Picasso, but uh, it's 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 not what you're looking at; it's what you see. And there are some explicit, yeah, explicit examples in in the misbehavior of markets, where um, Mandelbrot will give you if if you're paying attention and you know how to model things from a volatility perspective. You know, his rescaled range um, analysis, for example, where you can build such a good signal relative to what you might be using today. And that, to me, I, I humbly submit that. And I know it agitates some people, Jesse, but I really don't just like make fun of moving monkeys in jest. I used to use them, you know. What I'm using today just makes that look like a horse or a buggy whip or both relative to, to the machines we're running today. And it's thanks to Metal Brad. I mean, he really, he really nailed it and you know i yeah i
0: i read the book just i don't know uh, more recently than than you did uh, i think it was just a few years ago and there's concepts, you know, that you come across in your life that just resonate with you. Um, you know, for me, when I first came across the margin of safety concept, yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, the fractal side of things from Mandelbrot to me was like, oh, my God. Yeah, you look at things across different time frames and, you know, the patterns that emerge are just uh, stunning and undeniable. So, uh, yeah, it's
1: fascinating stuff. I think a margin of sa- margin of safety, you mean Clarman, um, right?
0: Well he he titled the book, yeah, Margin of Safety after the Ben Graham concept, you know, it dates back to, you know, and Ben Graham probably stole it from somebody too. So, yeah, yeah it's just uh yeah. but I, I I've taken up a ton of your time, Keith. I I got one final question for you. Um and this actually comes from a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who's um, you know, uh, a much better interviewer than I am. He wanted me to ask you, is there anywhere um in your, in your life uh, that you've had a, a key lesson, whether it's, you know, through your wall street experience, through hockey, anything in between um, like a life lesson that's really stuck with you and shaped your de- decision-making.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, getting fired in on November the 2nd of 2007. I, I, for those of you that haven't been fired, I'd say that I'd recommend it uh, in particular, if it's for reasons that give you an opportunity to find yourself. And to me, it really gave me an opportunity to, you know, to, to to bet on myself in the most meaningful way I could as a professional, which is, I'm going to put, I literally took a third of what I'd made at that point on Wall Street and, and invested it all in Hedgeye. I'm the only investor, um, initially the only investor we've never really had outside investors, but it was really um, that point where like, if you, if you can't trust your quote unquote partners, you um, to to be there and to bet on you when you need it the most. And it really, you got to do that and bet on yourself. I see a lot of people in this day and age, they got political opinions and they got professional opinions, but who really wants to be the change that that we're whining about here? And that to me being a solution or trying to be being, like I said, a learning organization um, externally and internally if I didn't have that, op- I mean, somebody has to give you that opportunity. they got to punch you in the face. they got to fire you. I got sent home with a box, you know, on a train and, and on that day in 07, and I'm, and I'm forever grateful for it.
0: That's, uh, you know, uh, a great point. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an experience that uh, clearly um, has had an impact in, in, in the way that you viewed it um it clearly had a a positive uh impact where where can people who want to learn more about keith mccullough um where can they uh where can they go online
1: uh hedgeye.com and and we have a lot of these things that i've been um some sometimes i think that my greatest challenge and 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 god willing i'm going to be able to do it but sometimes my greatest challenge is communicating the process and 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 also just that it's that it's constantly evolving um you know always learning new things but most of the most of the um nomenclature and, and terms that I, that i that i pointed out jesse are in on the hedge eye uh edu uh tab on our website and, and i think and for people that want to really learn or, or you, know, you know really i actually i like it when they when they think that we might be wrong about certain components of this, I mean, really engage with that. I mean, that that to me would, would be a, it's a great honor when people like, you know, read our, read about our process there and, and battle test it. And we get to engage in the debate.
0: Well, yeah, I recommend everybody go check it out and and follow Keith on Twitter if you're looking for some uh, edutainment (laughs) (laughs) in terms of the markets and whatnot. Um, This has been terrific, Keith. I'm really grateful to you. I've really appreciated uh, getting to understand you a little bit better, your process a little
1: bit better. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. It It was a great conversation. I appreciate it.
0: And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.